the book of Nehemiah. It's a sermon series called Fixer Upper. Because I don't know about you, but when I watch TV, there's a lot of shiplap from Chip and Joanna Gaines involved. So um, that's what we're talking about. The book of Nehemiah. At Regen, kind of our MO is we preach through a book of the Bible at, the, at a time. And we call this the Netflix approach to the Bible. Uh, right now, we are, I don't know if this is bad to admit out loud, we're binge watching Once Upon a Time at our house right now. Last fall, it was Gilmore Girls. So I feel like I retained some masculinity from this year to last year. But we, we preach usually through one book at a time, and that way you can walk out and say, I understand this story of who Jesus is in this book, and this week it's the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is just before the book of Job and Psalms. Um, if there's a blue paperback Bible under some of the chairs, you could grab that, look at the table of contents. You could pull out your phone and Google Nehemiah, or you can just listen to me. So we're going to be in Nehemiah 1, and... Uh, let me, I know I prayed a lot. We pray. We talk to Jesus a lot at our church. Let me pray one more time. Uh, Father, thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives, and thank you so much that we get to be a part of it. God, we believe that wherever your word is explained, your voice is heard. Wherever your word is explained, your voice is heard. And Jesus, I know after the week I've had, I just need to hear from you. And so through these words written thousands of years ago interrupt and challenge us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you a story, a story of a place that you've never heard of, of an ancient city left in ruins. It's a wild and faraway place uh, filled with strange people with even stranger names and even stranger stories. Unlike others, this story does not begin with the words, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Nor does it begin with the words, once upon a time. Because this story is true. Every single word of it comes from Nehemiah, royal cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, the governor of Judah, and one of the greatest leaders of all time. It's a story told in great detail in the book of Nehemiah, which is Nehemiah's autobiography. And he begins his story in Nehemiah chapter one. And he says this, in late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of, Ar of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. Nehemiah is a Jew who has never once set foot in the land of his forefathers. His home country is a place that he has never seen. It has been decades, generations even, since anyone laid eyes on the forests of Hebron or the deep salted waters of the Dead Sea or the mighty mountain Zion or even God's beloved city, Jerusalem. For, decade, for decades, Nehemiah's people had been living far away from home, 500 miles to the east, trapped, captive, exiled to Babylon. 
So on this fateful day when Nehemiah just so happened to bump into his cousin Hanani, he couldn't help but ask about the state of the city. He couldn't help but ask, how are things going at home? Hanani's report was not good. In verse 3 he says, things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Hanani's report took Nehemiah's breath away. His head was spinning. His knees grew weak. His heart broke. Nehemiah says, when I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. When Nehemiah discovers that his hometown is destroyed, so is his heart. When he hears that the walls of Jerusalem are broken, his heart breaks. And if we're honest, that's a little weird. Why does Nehemiah care about a city that he has never seen? Why does Nehemiah care about city gates that he's never walked through? Understand that since Nehemiah was a boy, he has sung these songs that you and I call psalms. They're found in the Old Testament. He's sung these psalms, and some of them tell about God's love for the city of Jerusalem. He sang about how Jerusalem was Yahweh's home on earth. He sang about how Yahweh loves the city of Jerusalem more than any other. And knowing that God loves this city that is broken down and falling apart, Nehemiah's heart can't help but break. But if that still seems strange to you, imagine how you would feel if you drove home this morning to find that your house had burned to the ground. Imagine if later on this afternoon, a friend calls you and leaves a voicemail and says that they had a gas leak in their home and it exploded. This is what Nehemiah is feeling He's stricken by grief. He's overwhelmed by sorrow. And in that place, Nehemiah prayed. I mean, have you ever just been to the edge of your edge of your edge and known that the only thing that you could do, even if you don't even really care about Jesus, at that end of your rope, you've prayed. You've reached out towards someone or something. That's what Nehemiah does. He reaches toward God and he prays this, in verse 5, he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down at me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I, I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands and decrees and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you want to know anything about the Bible, know this. The most important word in the Bible is but. He says, if you're unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations, but... If you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, even then, if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. 
Nehemiah is quoting something that Moses wrote in the book of Deuteronomy that God's people, because of their disobedience, would be scattered far and away, but if they turned their hearts back to him, he would hear. Guys, it doesn't matter how much you screwed up. Because when we incline our hearts toward God, even in the midst of our failure, he always hears. He says, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. Please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. We're going to discover over the next six weeks that Nehemiah is a man of action. For Nehemiah, talk is cheap. For Nehemiah, results are what matters most. Action is what counts. And yet here is Nehemiah, a man of action, so caught by his grief, so stunned that all he can do is pray. This man of action who has a broken heart for a broken city prays and and, and he reminds God of his covenant, his relationship with his people. He prays, his heart broken not just by walls but by by the sin of the people. He prays hopefully. His prayer is so hopeful because he knows that with God, mercy triumphs over judgment every time. He knows that with God, mercy triumphs over judgment every time. Nehemiah, this man of action, he prays. His prayer isn't hand-wringing and apathetic and anxious. No, it's a prayer of action because he says, please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. Nehemiah, a man of action, prays this prayer every day for four months. Nehemiah, a man of action, prays this prayer every day for four months. Before there was the Secret Service, or MI6, before the CIA, there were cupbearers. In every kingdom, you'd find an ordinary man given an extraordinarily sensitive task. It was his job, it was his job to select and taste the king's wine before he drank it. Nehemiah says, I was cupbearer to the king. And when he says that, he doesn't mean that he likes Pinot Grigio more than he likes Pinot Noir. He's not a wine snob. He's not a, what is, uh, what's the fancy word my parents use? Sommelier. Isn't that the most obnoxious word you've ever heard? You drink wine for a living. You be quiet. When Nehemiah says he was a cupbearer to the king, he isn't saying that he's a wine snob. He's saying that he's a bodyguard. Because every day, Nehemiah took his life into his own hands and raised that glass of wine to his lip and sipped it and waited. And maybe sometimes his stomach would hurt. And, oh no, his life flashed before his eyes. Or he sneezed. Does that mean... You've got to understand about King Artaxerxes. He's the mightiest king in the ancient Near East at this time, and he has a lot of enemies. The Babylonians' practice to take over cities was to take people from within the city, often princes, and skin them alive outside the city gates. 
Artaxerxes does not have a lot of friends. In fact, he has a lot of enemies, and the best way to kill a king is to slip a tiny little bit of poison into the wine he drinks with dinner, and so Nehemiah's job is to drink the wine first. Because of this, every day, Nehemiah and King Artaxerxes were close. Nehemiah would hand the king his glass of wine and his hand would brush up against the king's. They weren't friends, but they did have a relationship of trust, which means Nehemiah is uniquely positioned to beseech the king for help for his people. Every day for four months, four long months of praying, Nehemiah prays. He prays, put it into the king's heart to be favorable toward me. And on one fateful day in early spring, Nehemiah is sipping the glass of wine that he's about to hand the king. And this is what happens. Look at, look at what Nehemiah writes in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I'd never before appeared sad in his presence. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me, so you must be deeply troubled. Nehemiah was so shocked that he almost spat the wine right into the king's face. Because here's Nehemiah praying every day, God, give me a chance to speak to the king. Open the door, put it into the king's heart to be favorable for me. And now he didn't have to ask the king. The king asked him. Nehemiah says, four little words at the end of verse two. He says, then I was terrified. Nehemiah has gotten himself so worked up and so ready that all of a sudden his terror overtakes him and it stops up his tongue and, and, and all he can get out is, did long live the king. Uh, how can I not be sad? Um, for the city where my ancestors are buried uh, is in ruins, is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Uh, Nehemiah didn't really know what to say. Heck, he couldn't even remember what to say. I mean, Nehemiah, come on. I, you've been thinking about this for four months, and now you choose the moment to clam up. Now you choose to forget. The king asked, well, how can I help you? If Nehemiah hadn't been so scared, he would have laughed. I mean, when was the last time the president called and said, is there anything I can help you with? I mean, just yesterday, Nehemiah had watched Artaxerxes behead a slave just because he got a little, a little snooty. And now he's asking, now he's saying, how can I help you? I mean, Nehemiah, this, this man of action, he, he's ready, as ready as he can be. And so, how I, like, like how I prayed when I knelt to ask Steph to marry me, like how I prayed before every math test all the way through elementary school, middle school, and high school. I went to Bible college. We didn't have to take math. It was the best. <laughs> like I pray before those, Nehemiah prays. Look at what he says. And right before he can get any other of the words out, he says, with a prayer to the God of heaven, Nehemiah shoots up almost like a flare in the night, this prayer to God. He says, with a prayer to the God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king... And if you're pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. 
the moment had to just stretch on and on and on and on. This was the moment, and Nehemiah knew it. Have you, have you ever had this experience where you're in a 30 or 40 second period that goes on and on and on because you know that in these few seconds, the rest of your life is utterly going to change? I mean, maybe it was when you opened the letter that said, Dear so-and-so, it is our pleasure to share with you that you have been accepted to such and such a school. Maybe it was the moment when I said, dear so-and-so, we are sorry to say that you were not accepted. Maybe it was when they called and said, you got the job. Or they called and said, I'm sorry, we're going with somebody else. Maybe it was the moment you said, I do. Maybe it was the moment you signed the divorce paper. But you knew that in a matter of seconds, everything would change. This is exactly what's happening to Nehemiah. It's just floating out there, his request. Send me to Judah. Verse 6 says, The king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked, How long will you be gone? When will you return? If I'm Nehemiah, I'm a little disappointed because I can't tell if that's a yes or a no. And Nehemiah says, I've told him how long I would be gone. And the king agreed to my request. The king agreed to my request. The king agreed to my request. Have you ever had a moment where you're so excited that you want to dance, but you can't? So inside you are throwing a party but outside you're like, yes, that would be great. This is what Nehemiah is having. Nehemiah, if he could have done cartwheels, would have done them. Nehemiah went home and partied because the king agreed. Guys, the king agreed. The king who always says no. The king who didn't help other people in the same situation. The king agreed. And everything changes. A few months later, <clears throat> excuse me, a few weeks later, Nehemiah's days Nehemiah's days are filled with the sound of construction, saw against wood's grain of mortar being mixed, stone being chiseled. His days are long and sweaty. His hands used to be soft, but now they're hard and calloused from labor. The gates of the city of Jerusalem are almost complete and the wall is gaining height each day. And the people of Jerusalem, man, they could not be happier, but they could not be happier, but <laughs> the governors of the area, their names are Sanballat and Tobiah. Sanballat and Tobiah aren't exactly uh, thrilled. And in retrospect, rolling into town with chariots and an army and lumber, and gold, basically a parade. It may not have been the best way to start a friendship with Sanballat and Tobiah. It looked a little more threatening than Nehemiah had perhaps intended, and rumors were spreading through the camp. Sanballat and Tobiah were coming. Sanballat and Tobiah wanted blood. Sanballat and Tobiah want Nehemiah's head on a pike. 
Nehemiah sighs to himself and hefts another brick. The wall was almost halfway to its full height, so there would be time for Sanballat and Tobiah later, but for now, there was a wall to build. A wall. The wall. It's a strange passion. It's a bizarre calling. Why is Nehemiah so passionate about this city? Why is Nehemiah so focused on these walls? Why does it matter to him that a city he has never seen be protected? Why does he leave a powerful, influential position in Artaxerxes' court to go to a town in some backwater part of the Mediterranean? You gotta understand that for Nehemiah, it's never been about the wall. It's never been about the wall. Look at what Nehemiah writes in chapter one, verse three. He says, things aren't, he, he, he reports what Hanani said to him. He said, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by a fire. It's never been about a wall. It's about what the wall represented. It's about who the wall was protecting. It's about people. It's about the people that Nehemiah loves, people like you and I in trouble and in disgrace. People like you and I in trouble and in disgrace. Nehemiah isn't heartbroken just for walls. He's not heartbroken for brick and mortar and stone. He's heartbroken for people in trouble and disgrace. And so Nehemiah, a man of action, turns his face toward Jerusalem and runs toward the trouble and disgrace to build a wall, yeah, but ultimately to restore his people. And in the face of Nehemiah, we see the face of someone else, someone maybe slightly more familiar. We see the face of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter by trade. In Nehemiah, we get a picture of Jesus who one day turns his face toward Jerusalem. He does not come with an army in tow. He does not come with hammers and nails and blueprints. No, Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem and he goes alone empty-handed. He, he walks through gates built by Nehemiah and past walls constructed by Nehemiah's effort. He goes to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, and Jesus, a man of actions, his empty hands are stretched. Nails are put into his hands. He is stripped naked and he dies criminal's death. In the face of Nehemiah, we see the face of Jesus. Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem some 500 years after Nehemiah because he is the better and truer Nehemiah. Jesus is the better and truer Nehemiah who looks on the ruins, not of a city. He looks on the destruction, not of a city, but of the human heart and he looks at it with the eyes of a master contractor, a master builder, and he says, 
I can fix that. I can fix that. In Nehemiah, we encounter a Jesus. We encounter a Jesus who says that there is no ruin so complete, that there is no disaster so far gone, that Jesus won't come running to repair it with his grace. Hear me. In Nehemiah, we encounter a Jesus who says there is no ruin so complete, no disaster so far gone, that I won't come running to repair that with my grace. In Nehemiah, we see a Jesus who comes running toward our trouble and disgrace. He doesn't look at our mess and say, ooh, no thank you. He doesn't look at our mess and hire it done. No, Jesus takes the steps three at a time, running toward us in our trouble and disgrace. He runs toward our broken marriage, our addictions. He runs, runs toward the past that haunts us, our failed relationships. He runs toward our pride. He runs toward our religion. He runs toward our political correctness. And he says with the excellence and expertise of a master builder, I can fix that. The repair takes more and costs more than just stone and mortar and brick and wood. It requires blood and tomb and death and resurrection. Jesus, a carpenter, Jesus, a carpenter by trade. That's not an accident. Jesus, a carpenter by trade, looks on your heart and my heart. He looks at those corners of brokenness and disappointment, of sickness and hopelessness a failure of captivity. He looks on that, on that trouble and disgrace, and he says this. Look, my home is now among my people. I will live with them, and they will be my people. I myself will be with them. I will wipe every tear from their eye, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain or trouble or disgrace. All these things, Jesus says, are gone forever. Jesus looks on our trouble and disgrace, on the ruin of our hearts, and he says, look, I am making all things new. Let's pray. Could I invite you this morning to call to mind your trouble and your disgrace. Truth be told, that might be very easy for some of us right now, but can I call you, can I invite you to call to mind your trouble and your disgrace? And let me tell you about Jesus. He does not look at that disgusted or disappointed. If he cries over it, it's because he cries with you. Can I invite you to see Jesus sprinting toward you? He doesn't walk, he doesn't even jog. I mean, he's running. He's running. What sent Nehemiah running to Jerusalem was not anything more than somebody telling him there was a problem. And can I tell you the truth? Jesus already knows, and Jesus is so eager to be present and help 
in your time of trouble. And all he's looking for you is to say, yeah. And so can I invite you to do something that is entirely otherworldly? Can I invite you to do something that is so crazy? Can I invite you to say yes to Jesus this morning? Can I invite you to say yes? Offer him that brokenness, that trouble, that disgrace. Be encouraged to know that all of the broken pieces of our lives, he gathers in his mercy and makes them new, makes them whole. Jesus, be present to us, be present to each one. Come running with your love, come running with your grace, come running with your mercy, come running with your forgiveness, come running with your kindness. God, restore us from our addictions, restore us from our brokenness, restore us from our apathy, restore us from our correctness, restore us from our pride, restore us from this, I'm gonna keep you at arm's length because that's all I need, thank you very much. Restore us from just a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Jesus, restore us, come walking into the hearts, come into the very center of them, Jesus, and restore and rebuild and renew Oh, because you delight in it. Jesus, let us hear your laughter over our lives. Oh, my friends, Jesus longs to just walk in, or even better, to run in. May you be defined this morning, not by your past or your failure, but by this Jesus who comes running toward you. May you say yes to him. Jesus, we say yes to you this morning. Jesus' name. Amen.